Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto and this is a summer special of The Front Page, the NZ Herald's daily news podcast. While we're on our summer break, we're taking a look back at some of the biggest news stories and top-rated episodes from the podcast this year. New Year's Day 2024 will mark 26 years since Ben Smart and Olivia Hope disappeared. In the early hours of New Year's Day 1998, the two accepted an offer to stay aboard a man's yacht while staying in the Marlborough Sounds. They were never seen again. Their disappearances and presumed deaths have long been pegged on Scott Watson for over two decades. But despite still being behind bars, Watson has always maintained his innocence. The case has long divided the country between those who are convinced of Watson's guilt and those who don't think justice was served. Last year, broadcaster Paul Henry wrote a powerful piece for The Herald revealing his beliefs that even if Watson is guilty, there has been a miscarriage of justice. Today, we're revisiting that conversation, one of our most downloaded of 2023, to hear from Henry why he has finally spoken out on one of the country's most divisive crime stories. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Can you take us back to 1998 when you first heard about this case? You were working at Radio New Zealand at that time, right? In the newsroom at Broadcasting House in Wellington. Uh, I was a newsreader and I just remember the frenzy of activity and enthusiasm for a story that was building. And it was a dramatic story. It was something that people were clearly going to be interested in. It was clearly going to last a while. It was happening at a time of year when nothing in New Zealand happens. And, of course, if you go back 25 years, really nothing happened. The country Yeah, it's a summer out. period. So in a country where almost nothing happens all the time, at a time when absolutely nothing happens, a large newsroom and the likes of other large newsrooms in the country were being fed with this fascinating building, growing story. So the news and the media obsession started really quickly. But how long have you felt that justice wasn't served in this case? And why have you decided to take this moment to share your thoughts? I think it was over a period of weeks and then maybe a month, maybe through to about six weeks in. And I was following it, not really, I was a journalist, but I wasn't following it as a journalist. I was a newsreader. So I had the benefit of feeding off the information that was coming into the newsroom and then seeing how we were disseminating that information. And there, I couldn't believe that alarm bells weren't ringing more loudly about this police investigation that was taking place. I also couldn't believe that when it became so obvious to me that Scott Watson was a suspect in the case and was being treated as a suspect in the case... He was not being treated by the legitimate media as a suspect. Quite the opposite. I think the media were allowing themselves to be used as a tool of the police. Because that's and the nature of the media's relationship with the police quite often. They rely on the press releases and the statements yeah. that are coming from And who relies on who the most? I mean, you know, it's a symbiotic mm-hmm. relationship. But the person that didn't have a voice was Scott Watson or his family, really. I know for a fact police were feeding information to the media about Scott Watson, about the case. Then, of course, there were the legitimate press conferences that all media were feasting on. And because Scott Watson was not charged with a crime, there was no subjudice situation in place. Mm -hmm. And so the country could hear anything they wanted about Scott Watson. We knew about his previous crimes. We knew that he was a ratbag. 
We knew that he was being questioned by police. All of those things could be reported and could be speculated on and were wildly speculated on. Do you think that that framing influenced public opinion and oh, 100%. had an influence on the end, the, the court decision? At How the could end? you possibly? I mean, in the story, I say, you know, when he walked into that courtroom, there wasn't one set of eyes on him that didn't know he was guilty. You know, the story had well been told, had well been litigated before he came close to a courtroom. Yeah, and I suppose the reminder here is that New Zealand is a relatively small country and the media was quite concentrated. In and go back group. 25 years. It was a much smaller country then than it is now and the media platforms were much smaller and fewer than they are now. There wouldn't have been anyone who was even vaguely interested in the news that, that hadn't formed an opinion on Scott Watson. And of course, several of them were judging him as a jury. Paul, in your piece, you write that there is zero hard evidence against Watson. Can you explain what you mean by that? There is zero hard evidence against him. In fact, was there even a crime? What's the evidence that there was a crime? Here's the total evidence that there was a crime. Two people went missing, and 25 years later, there is still no sign of them. Now, I say in the piece that that alone suggests foul play, that two people can go missing and there be no trace whatsoever of them or their bodies suggests foul play. But I've just given you in those few seconds everything we know. That is everything we know. Is there even a crime? All we know is that two people have gone missing and they've never been seen again. I suppose that's the problem here because one of the things standing against Watson is the fact that nobody else appeared as a potential killer, right? So is there a case... Did he appear as a potential killer? Well, I suppose... I mean, everyone was a potential killer. I was working in Wellington. Maybe I did it. More inconvenient for me than Scott because I was a bit further away. But, I mean, everyone there was a potential killer. Given that, there is no motive. There are no bodies. Was there a crime? There are no witnesses, no bodies, no motive. Your article, published during a very quiet period at the Herald, sparked quite a response from the public, and we had quite a few emails pouring in. A few of the emails mentioned that two hairs were found on Watson's boat that were linked to Olivia Hope, and they're going to be key parts of the court process as the matter appears before the courts in May. In some of the letters to the editor responding to your piece, they suggested that this was the proof that we needed that linked Watson to... Well, had they not read my piece... I handled in depth the two hairs. And you're right, there are two things that the Court of Appeal will be looking at Mm -hmm. in May. This is really Watson's last chance to clear his name. I think it's not a great chance, but it's the best chance he's had and probably the last chance he'll get. The two things that they're going to look at, and it's only these two things, is the photo pictures that largely were the second most significant piece of evidence. So the fact that there were two people that said, yeah, that's him. So they pointed to a picture of him. They're going to look at that. And I pointed out that I am very confident that the way that evidence was handled, the way those pictures were put together, would be inadmissible today in any courtroom anywhere in the world, except for maybe a banana republic, they would be inadmissible today. And the other thing they're looking at is the DNA evidence of which the two hairs, most likely Olivia's hairs, will be examined. Not examining the hairs, but examining the way the DNA evidence was held. Now, that anyone could respond to my article by saying that that's a slam dunk would indicate to me they hadn't read my article. There are so many errors with the way that evidence was collected, was handled, was interpreted, 
that I believe that would also be ruled inadmissible today. So as the Court of Appeal also believes that there's enough to consider here, which is why they want to hear the matter again. Yeah, it seems very unlikely to me that they won't rule very harshly on the way the photo montages were put together. And I would hope that if they're half reasonable about their ruling, they will determine that that is inadmissible. On anyone's standards, it's inadmissible. Well, let's just talk about those photographs for a moment because this does point to the inconsistencies among the witnesses in terms of identifying Watson. And it also touches on the idea that witnesses can be quite unreliable. So how did those inconsistencies and the, the, the notion of the unreliable witness play out in the Watson case? Well, it's, it's not so much the witnesses, it's the way the police handled it. And the police have already been criticised for the way they handled it by the police conduct authority who investigated this. And they said that it was... I think to quote them, I can't remember the exact words, but it was roughly fell far short of best practice. Um, what happened was the, uh, the witnesses, and we're talking about essentially a very small group of people, uh, two groups of people really, the smallest group, the most important group, those that were on the water taxi that were involved in delivering Ben and Olivia to their last known spot, and then the slightly wider group who were the people at Ferno Lodge that evening. A little bit more complicated because, of course, it's not contained, a lot of people there, whereas the water taxi was a very contained situation. handful of people in the water taxi, that's all. Now, none of the witnesses identified Scott Watson's photograph in the first montage. None. None of them identified him. None of the witnesses said any of those people were the mystery man. And the mystery man, remember, was the one who offered Ben and Olivia bed on his boat. They were delivered to this boat. If that boat was not Scott Watson's boat, or stroke and, if Scott Watson was not the mystery man, then Scott Watson is not guilty. The only similarity over here, one of them had similar hair, was a point in recession on either side. It's interesting to note that Amelia didn't point out Scott Watson, who was number three in this montage. So none of the witnesses identified him. And so what the police did is they put together another photo montage with a different photo of Scott Watson. A photograph of Scott Watson that was taken when he was halfway between a blink. He looked quite different in that photograph, but there were aspects of that photograph that actually sounded a little bit like some of the things some of the witnesses had said. Two of the witnesses, Guy Wallace, who was the water taxi driver, said after repeated questioning and very pointed questioning, and this is partly why it should have been held inadmissible, these witnesses were absolutely pressured. Well, choose someone. Well, it, it's no one. It's, I've told you before, it's none of those people. Well, if it was one of those people, which one would it be? I mean, how can you possibly call this an identification? Anyway, Guy Wallace and one other witness, the person that was serving the mystery man and many others at Ferno Lodge, both acknowledged that the eyes in this one particular photo, remember, they'd already said it wasn't him in the first montage, the eyes maybe looked a little bit like it. And the transcript of events goes something like, okay, so you're identifying number three. Well, what I'm saying, no, yeah, it, just please answer my question. You're identifying number three. Well, yeah, all oh, right, that's an identification. Also from a framing perspective, that half-blink photograph was probably the least flattering that I've seen of Scott 100%. Watson. 100%. And that became an image that was used widely in the media too. 100%. And here's an interesting thing. Guy Wallace, the water taxi driver, who consistently said, I'm not saying that's him, but I'm just saying the eyes in that one. He also was responsible, one of the small group of people that put together a photo fit picture of someone who looked totally different 
to the photograph that he allegedly acknowledged was a photograph of the person who was a mystery man. Now, all of those things should ring alarm bells. The other thing is there was one other person who, in exactly the same way, didn't identify Scott Watson in the first montage, but in the second one said, well, the eyes on that one handled exactly in exactly the same way. She was a person who served the mystery man at Furno Lodge for several hours. She said at the time to police, I understand, because she was told this and it was completely true, you have a photograph of Scott Watson that was taken just and I, I can't remember how long, but maybe an hour before he went to Ferno Lodge. That very evening, the photograph was taken of Scott Watson. Could I see that photograph? And they said to her something like, you've already identified photograph three, that won't be necessary. She was not permitted access to a photograph, which police have, which subsequent to the court case, where she was a key witness, she said she saw and can emphatically say that was not the man that she was serving. That was not the person that was in the photograph with the, you know, it was not the, the, the person that she had identified because of the eye situation. Now, I say in the story that police withholding that photograph indicates to me very clearly they knew who they wanted charged for this crime. And I say in the photo they were, to a degree, ignoring every lead that didn't take you down a Scott Watson road. If you're enjoying this episode of The Front Page, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And for more crime and justice news, analysis and podcasts, head to nzherald.co.nz. In your piece, you don't attack the investigating officer, Pope, but you do say that he managed a sloppy investigation. So how much blame do you place here on the investigating officer versus the processes within the police force? I think they're very much one and the same, aren't they? I mean, this was a very, very high-profile case, and that did put pressure under Rob Pope. I mean, he started the ball rolling with media conferences. You know, this was a huge story being fed by police. He created this animal that then, of course, wanted, and I say in the story, you know, the entire country is responsible for this because the entire country were baying for the next instalment. And so he was under considerable pressure to take this story forward. Maybe that is one of the reasons that, in my opinion, the entire case was handled very sloppily by police. I mean, I think the way, in my mind, there is significant evidence to prove that witnesses were under considerable pressure to make certain decisions that they had specifically said they were not capable of making. The entire community was put under pressure and was being led down one path by this investigation. So the whole country was watching. I talk, yeah. I talk about a gut feeling. It was Pope's gut feeling. Now, Police will talk about gut feelings, and oftentimes they are entirely correct. Oftentimes that's the way. I mean, it's exactly the same when you're asked a multiple choice question. You don't know the answer, but for some reason your gut tells you it's one. Probably that is the answer, because somewhere in there, you know, building up on your life's knowledge, somewhere you knew the answer, and your gut's telling you it's that one. It's the same with, obviously, everyone. So police in an investigation, a good cop will get a gut feeling, but it's not 100% accurate. Are you planning to take this advocacy any further? Do no, I've done my bit. You've done your bit? I've done my bit. I should have done something earlier. I occupied a huge number of platforms in this country mm -hmm. and could have done something about it then, but didn't. Do you have a sense of regret about not doing anything? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. 
During the investigation, Watson accused the police of influencing media coverage by leaking rumours to reporters. But I suppose this can also go the other way with activists and amateur sleuths influencing public opinion too in terms of what they release to reporters and what they put on their personal platforms. So given that this matter will appear before the courts in May, are you concerned at all about influencing public opinion? One no, because public opinion doesn't matter. It's the Court of Appeal. Sure. So in this case, public opinion doesn't matter. As I've said, the Court of Appeal in May are looking at two specific technical things, the DNA evidence and the photo montage, the recognition there. So public opinion really has no... Yeah, there's no jury. No, no, that's right. You also wrote in your piece that you have no personal interest in getting in touch with Scott Watson about the case. His father, Chris, was, however, thankful for your piece in an interview with the Herald on New Year's Day. Have you heard from either of them since you've done your reporting on this matter? No, and neither would I want to. I mean, they're fallout from my story, really. What my story was about was honesty, about fairness, and was about the justice system in this country. And I don't care about Scott Watson. He doesn't, you know, I've got no reason to believe he's a nice bloke or anything like that. I mean, who cares? You know, none of that matters. What matters is that someone who hasn't been proved guilty beyond all reasonable doubt has lost 25 years of his life. And to me that matters because it mattered in this country and like so, so many people in this country, we were responsible for putting him away. Paul, one thing that's really stark about this case is that there are no bodies. So do we know anything about where the bodies are or do the police have a theory on where they might be? Well, police had to have a theory on where they might be. Police had to construct the case because, as I say, all you had were two people that were missing. You didn't have them, they were missing. That's the total case in reality. So police, of course, they had to create an environment whereby he could have disposed of the bodies in a way that they could not possibly have been found. And so they proposed that the bodies were taken to Cook Strait. Now, Blade, which was Scott Watson's boat, little steel sloop that he built himself, could only travel at a certain speed. It has been impossible for anyone to replicate the journey that police propose had to be made to dispose of the bodies roughly in the area that police said they were. And remember, a lot of money and time was consumed trying to find bodies there and they weren't found. What we know is when Scott Watson's boat was in the bay at Furno Lodge, where apparently he killed two people, whilst tethered to two other small boats in a crowded bay, he committed a double murder on that boat. The people right next, in the literally sleeping or talking or whatever, one foot away from him in a little boat tied to his, did not hear anything, did not feel anything in terms of the movement. Anyone that knows boats will know the movement is considerable. Anyway, police have said, and it's been confirmed by a review, that they don't need to replicate that journey. It's not their job to prove that the journey was possible. How does that work? How does that work? Because I thought you were innocent until proven guilty. The other aspect of that was the two-trip theory. Now, the biggest problem for the prosecution in this case was that the mystery man was on the water taxi and did take Ben and Olivia onto his boat from the water taxi. Problem, Scott Watson, well before the water taxi left with Ben and Olivia, was already back on his boat. He could not have been on the water taxi. And multiple people identified that he had come back in the approximate time because those people were on the two little boats that his little boat was tethered to in the bay. So the prosecution at the last minute introduced what they called the two-trip theory. They said, yes, well, he did leave before they left. So he must have gone back to continue partying and then been on the water taxi. Now, that's a proposition. 
they had to have that proposition because if he wasn't in the water taxi, he didn't do it. Yeah, it's tying the narrative together. How did he, to exactly. Your, your How did he do it? How did he get back? Oh, well, there were many ways he could have got back. He could have swum. He was a man who was blind drunk. He had consumed, at the very least, one full bottle of spirits on his own. But much more than that, he was stumbling around on his boat and the other two boats it was tethered to when he woke everybody up when he arrived home, well before Ben and Olivia left Furno Lodge. The prosecution said during the court case, it doesn't matter how he got back. Their argument was, all we have to prove is it's possible that he got back. That just feels such a stretch from the idea of beyond reasonable doubt, which is normally the requirement for criminal proceedings in this country. Paul, the Court of Appeal hearing won't happen until May. When a decision is handed down there, do you think that we should just let the matter go, regardless of which way the judges decide? I don't think we can. But of course we will. I mean, it's gone for a quarter of a century now. And there are a lot of people who are happy to say, and you heard this so much at the time, you know, well, we're maybe a little unsure whether he did it or not, but he's not a very nice guy. Does it really matter? Yes, it matters a lot. If we can't prove that he's guilty, we can't lock him up. Because if we can do that for him, we can do it for anybody. But I said in the piece, I think his chances of success are pretty slim because the Justice Department will throw an awful lot at trying to secure this, at trying to defend the conviction. And in opposition to that, Scott Watson has access to far less. The bar to overturning a conviction is very, very, very high. The best way to overturn the conviction would be for someone to credibly confess to having committed the crime, would be for the bodies to be found in situation that completely ruled out the police scenario. But, I mean, that's very unlikely 25 years later. So it'll be interesting to see what the Court of Appeal rule. Thanks for joining us, Paul. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.